This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Resuming Campaigns. Gunung Padang. The Orca War on Boats. And the American Revolution's Chief Chrono Vulnerabilities. It's the most wonderful time of the year, and I'm Mrs. Claus. Ho, 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 and I'm Santa Claus, here to spill the cocoa beans on the kerfuffle here at the North Pole. Kerfuffle? What kerfuffle? Well, you see, my dear, the elves have been acting a bit... Hmm, strangely in the workshop. Oh, Santa, what's going on with our elves? Rumor has it a pesky imp has sneaked into the workshop to sabotage the toys and ruin Christmas. Oh, my goodness, a mischievous imp at the North Pole. Yes, indeed, and the tricky part is our elves can be quite the mischief makers themselves, so I'm having trouble telling who's the imp. And that's where Weird Little Elf comes in, right? Exactly. Weird Little Elf is a holiday card game for all ages. Players take turns being me, ho, 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 Santa, and ask the elves one simple question. And the rest play the elves who answer the question. But secretly, one of them is the imp, following a special rule like scratch your nose or cross your eyes that they have to do on the sly. Accuse the imp correctly three times and you win. Plus, it's an acute palm-sized box. Perfect for a stocking stuffer. You can get your holiday shopping done early and give a delightful surprise to your family, co-workers, teachers, and daycare staff. And don't forget our gamer buddies. Ho, 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 they'll love it. We can get one for them and maybe sneak in a few rounds ourselves. So this Christmas, let's spread some cheer with Weird Little Elf, the ultimate holiday party game. Ho, ho, ho. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the gaming hut where beloved Patreon backer Keelan O'Hay has a problem. Over the last few years, writes Keelan, there's been a number of times that circumstances conspired to make my tables take unplanned breaks for extended periods of time, COVID scares, family emergencies, and so forth. It always seems to be the case that whenever we try to start up the game again, regardless of how enthusiastic everyone was about the game before the break, all the momentum has gone out from the game, and it quickly peters out after a session or two back at the table, we end up starting something new. What advice do you have for keeping that momentum going during the break, or spinning it back up when we're finally back at the table? Is there a point where the time between sessions just becomes too long, and it's better to let the game lie. Robin, what's your break and resume? Yes, I think inevitably so. And for my group, that length of time is pretty short. There's been several times when I have wanted to pick something back up after a break and everybody else is, oh, no, we've kind of forgotten about that. We'd have to go back and remember everything that happened. Let's do something new. And so as with every question of a GMing nature, uh, the first question is, do your players actually want you to do that? It may be, in fact, that the pattern that you're seeing where they are agreeing to start up again and then it kind of peters out reflects their actual desires that they're just sort of they're going along with you. And maybe they did really love what was happening before. But clearly 
they're not engaged enough to do their part of the work in spinning themselves uh, back up again. So maybe that more groups are like mine than are like you would are hoping that your group would be. Yeah. I don't think that I've had this specific problem. Um, we've certainly had games that everyone got tired of during play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've all had that. Yeah. But I guess it's either because the longest break we have is about two weeks, maybe three weeks. Maybe not. I don't even know if we've had a three-week break in the history of my Monday game. My Wednesday game, the people are amped up all the time. I think we could probably break for a year and they'd come back raring to go. But the Monday group is, I guess, my sort of more normal baseline group. And I feel like we just haven't had a long enough break to, to, to begin that process or to make it indistinguishable from normal game fatigue. And I do sort of try and keep a pulse on the game and, and see, are people just going through the motions? Are they bored? Are they riffing? Are they doing cool things with the world? That's sort of my metric is if they're still engaging with the world and making fun decisions that, that move gameplay, then they're obviously still invested in it. But I mean, we've all started watching a really great show and then gotten distracted. And no matter how great it was, we didn't come back to it. We went on to another great show. And I don't know that role-playing is immune to that, you know, sort of streaming television syndrome where, you know, if you're not uh, binging, you ain't watching. So to move from it's okay if you have this problem and you can accept it, <laughs> let's move on to what you might actually do if everybody is genuinely on board with trying to do it and working out how to make that happen again and how to mm -hmm. get the energy back up. And I would, since you're talking about TV, I would look at a new season of a show that's been off the air for six months or a year or whatever it is, and look at how a new season of a show will reset the table and reinvest you in all of the characters. So it may be that you're thinking, well, actually, this is more like introducing a new game. So even if you had to, in this example, you're, you didn't control when you stopped. So you may have had all sorts of things up in the air. You would have ne not necessarily have had a satisfying conclusion the way that some but not all TV seasons choose to do. <laughs> However, you've got to start again. And so rather than just pick up exactly where you left off, even if where you left off was heading toward a cool cliffhanger, jump forward in time and then think of a first scenario that reintroduces all of the characters the way that you would do if you hadn't played at all previously. So you're not just picking up where you left off but you're possibly jumping forward in time, possibly putting the characters in new situations, definitely reintroducing the characters and creating a new situation that people can respond to as if this is their first session, not their 12th or, or whatever. Then later, you can go back and start to reintroduce the things that you dropped from the previous series after people are already reinvested. And so let's say the, you know, everything was heading toward a great conspiracy involving the dragon men, and then you stopped. Instead of restarting in the middle of the dragon men plot line where everybody has to go back and search their memories and remind themselves why they care about the dragon men, you introduce a whole new threat. And then when someone asks, well, what happened about that whole dragon men thing? It's, well, it kind of they kind of petered out and that you lost track of them. And now you're worried about this thing. And then once they're engaged with the season two or season four or whatever it is, plot line, then the dragon men come back and you can then reintroduce people to that material with a sort of a previously on a kind of thing. And of course, being able to do that depends on someone 
you or someone else haven't taken enough notes to do that. Yeah. Or you can sort of use the opportunity to, even if you're going to what would have been great in play, I completely echo and endorse what you say, Robin. And if you hadn't said it, I would have said it in this case. But when you jump ahead, maybe even take the opportunity to ask the players, how do you think it would have come out or how would you have wanted it to come out? And so when you're starting off battling the, the shark men on your, you know, cool new catamaran that all the characters are on and, uh, they're like, wow, we're on a, we're on a seacoast. It's a tropical seacoast and everyone looks buff and cool. And then they say, whatever happened to the dragon men? And you say, I don't know. You tell me. How did you, how did you stop that conspiracy? It looked pretty bad. You know, what with it having suborned the church and all. And then they give their answer and that becomes true and you just move through it and there will be plenty of drop threads, lost bits, whatever. And even if they won, defeated the Dragon Man conspiracy, unless they did Dragon Man genocide, there's going to be some Dragon Man out there shaking his fist and saying, I'll get you improbably buff heroes. And, you know, the Dragon Man 2 electric boogaloo can begin season three or it can become that the Dragon Men are actually trying to help out the Shark Men. Uh, even though you're there protecting the lovely, cuddly coastal people. Also, this can be an opportunity. Uh, often there's a player in a group that gets restless playing their character without wanting to jump out of the game. They just want to play a new PC mm-hmm. in your existing game. And this is a great opportunity to let everybody know if you want to switch characters, you can do that. Now, if everybody wants to switch characters, uh, again, that's a sign that they're less in- engaged with the the game or perhaps... Uh, you know, there's that those memory issues that I've talked about. But even so, if they all still want to play different characters in the same game in a way that will start to bring in the material from the previous one, that could be fun too. So I, I so I guess basically the larger point is look for a bigger reset, a thing that is not just trying to rekindle the other one, but some. So if you're in the middle of a vampire game, there's a ton of different threads and bits of interaction and stuff that people will uh, have developed over time. But when you restart, there's a new prince in town and everything has changed and you have to go back and reestablish all of your relationships with some of the characters. And maybe some of them are dead. They're off the table or in something with a more sort of case of the week structure gives you a, I think an easier in the less uh, sort of corpus of of continuity that people have to remember better. So I think that this works better with some games than others, right? If it's an F20 game, just like, oh, you found a new dungeon. There, you're ready to go. And uh, But that's clearly not what we're talking about here. Yeah, I I think that the notion of swapping up characters is another great way to, to change it out. And either, you know, they're connected to the old character or they're an entirely new character, and then the fate of their previous character can become a great plot line because they're pre-invested in that. Even if they didn't want to keep playing Dogar the Elf, they'll still be interested when they hear that Dogar the Elf has been sighted, you know, killing mysterious hooded strangers up at Ram Pass. And they're like, oh, man, I remember Dogar. He was great. And then that will bring them into that storyline if if that's what you want. Maybe they were dragon men. That's why they were masked, you can say. Right. It's possible also that in addition to or instead of people wanting to switch their characters, that the composition of your group has changed, right? Yeah, you might have added somebody. Had those schedule problems. Those are ongoing and the rest of you want to get back together. And so uh, assuming you're able to recruit another player, that character can be your way into re-entering the situation and reintroducing everybody and resetting the table. So you could start season two with, you know, that character is the first one on stage. 
they have a problem, and that problem will eventually wend their way toward meeting the rest of the group. And so the first one is kind of focused on them, and that allows the uh, existing players to reintroduce their characters, not just to each other, but to a player as well as a character who's completely unfamiliar with them. And so that, and that's a device you often see in fiction, right? That the, the outsider entering the complex situation is the vehicle for providing exposition to them and, and making what's going on clear to the audience. Yeah. And it's also something that occasionally happens in serial fiction. You'll take up the, you know, viewpoint of another character who, you know, is going to meet the main character or the main team. And it's interesting as to how they do that. And if you've got the time, it can create a really organic feel of party unity. If you play through the, why did you hang out with this troop of weird hobos? And they're saying, because I'm from the cuddly coastal village and my people are being attacked by shark men. And I heard that they had a righteous hand in hyphenated men attacking and I wanted to go after them and uh, get their help. And that suddenly becomes a far more organic plot hook and story hook and it connects out to the whole character backstory than just you meet a guy in a weird hat in a coastal tavern and he tells you about sharkmen and while that works i think it works better if you're working it into another player's backstory and then working that into the game now another drawback of this of course is still vagaries of attendance right oh, yeah. is that if you really want to try and schedule your first session for one where ideally everybody but Secondarily, almost everybody can attend. So you might want to think on a practical level, if you have scheduled a new game night that you might have, you know, a higher threshold for quorum mm -hmm. for your resumption of play. Because if you schedule your resumption game and only half the group shows up, the other half is not going to experience that reboot and they're going to feel even further behind yeah. on a campaign that they are already having trouble reconnecting with. And so you might want to, you know, really be uh, strict about that, even if it means, you know, canceling a potential game night in favor of one where you finally you can get, if not all of the band, most of the band together. And that, I think, you know, sort of opens up a whole new question, which is how do we do scheduling? How do we handle, you know, vagaries? I think we've talked somewhat about that, but the notion of when is game night and what is quorum, I think are sort of hardy perennials, if you will, Robin. Right. Well, since we're seem to be slipping into another topic, the scheduling of this podcast demands that we end this segment and uh, listen to a beautiful commercial. And then another segment on the other side. Green Press invites you to a reality-shattered masked ball. With three new support products for the Yellow King role-playing game. Black Star Magic, a guide to supernatural powers in the four realms haunted by the King in Yellow. Where every spell is potent. A potent shock card, that is. Includes magic rules and their accompanying shock cards by Robin. And a magic-rich scenario for each of the four sequences. Dancer at the Bone Cabaret, Sarah Saltiel's Tale of Belle Epoque Terror. A Casket at Latil. Village-based military horror from Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Memories of a Dream Clown, Ruth Kitchen Tillman's visitation with everyone's favorite Aftermath children's entertainer. And Sarah's Love Wears No Mask, which brings Carcosa to its natural contemporary home. 
reality television. Also out now, Legions of Carcosa, the bestiary for the Yellow King. From alien parasites to warped human conspirators. From hungry buildings to incarnations of drought. From gods torn from the pages of myth to war machines that hunt in wolf-like packs. Legions of Carcosa presents 86 new foes to mystify, haunt, and menace your investigators. Fresh from the skull-matched minds of John R. Harness, Kira Magrin, Sam Saltiel and Monica Valatinelli with Daniel Kwan. Finally, you can now also grab Robin's latest novel, Fifth Imperative. Follow the technician, previously seen in The Missing and the Lost, as he continues his reluctant political rise and discovers a bullet that refuses to follow the rules. Kicking off a fast-paced supernatural alternate reality political thriller. Yep, it's one of those again. All three available now. That's Black Star Magic, Legions of Carcosa, and Fifth Imperative. Available at Royally Superior your local game stores or at the Pelgrane Press web shop. It's time to make sure that our helmets are full of pith, that our uh, axes are full of pick, and that we've got some ground tomography going because, Ken, we're once more in the archaeology hut. And this time around, we're going to look at Gunung Padang, which has been in the news lately due to an extraordinary claim... <laughs> and that extraordinary claim, not to give away the plot twist that is going to happen midway through this, was made with a straight face. The name uh, means mountain field, and this is a site in Indonesia. And can you know exactly how high this hill or mound is? Well, I mean, I do, in fact. It is 450 feet above the ground level, which itself is much higher. It's up in the an old volcanic it is, it mountain is a field, range. which is also a mountain. Yes, it's a field on a mountain, which is also on another mountain. The uh, little village nearby is called Karyamukti. Uh, it's in southwestern Java, and there's sort of, you know, the mountains run up into the interior, and once you get into the Javanese interior, you're talking, as we sort of touched on, with regards to our uh, Flory's Man episode, you're talking about a, almost a whole new country. But anyway, the actual uh, site is five flattened terraces moving up the hill to the top, the smallest terraces on the top, but it gets bigger as it goes down. They're walled in by volcanic stone works and surrounded by standing Andesite stones. The stones themselves come from a nearby river valley. There's no Stonehenge hullabaloo. And depending on how you look at the mountain, and even real archaeologists accept this. There may have been eight more corroded terraces moving further down the hill to the bottom, but they've basically fallen apart and weren't maintained. I mean, not that any of this was particularly maintained. Fun fact about the stones. Some of them are uh, shaped like prisms. And if you bang on them, they make a musical notes. F, G, D, and A. You can bang on those. Uh, they're natural, acoustically wonderful rocks. And apparently... The locals, once they rediscovered it in 1979, began banging on the rocks to accompany various ceremonies that they do. So the claim about this uh, this musical pyramid, mm -hmm. that there's been strong evidence produced by an archaeological team. A geological team. A geological None team. of them are archaeologists. That's the problem. Right. Well, that's the claim. <laughs> yeah. So the claim is, it's, <laughs> they're being described as archaeologists. So the claim is that archaeologists have uh, found evidence that this is the oldest pyramid known to man by many tens of thousands of years, vastly predating all other civilizations. And that is the claim that uh, has been straight-facedly repeated. By people who should know better, like Scientific American. Right. 
And these are not the first people to discover the site, but the site was discovered and then undiscovered, right? Yeah, as I say, the interior of Java, jungly and mountainy and generally not full of Javanese. And so as far as as far as history tells us, this site was first discovered by a Dutch traveler named de Court in 1890 and a Dutch archaeologist named Nicholas Johannes Krom went and did the first site survey of it in 1914. And then he went off and put it in his big book of stuff I found in Java. And it, then it got swallowed back up by the forest and local farmers rediscovered it in 1979. So when you say things like, oh, this is sacred to the locals, you're saying, well, it's been sacred to the locals since the Reagan administration. So sure, they ascribe it to a legendary Sunda king uh, the Sundanese or the native Austronesian people in southwest Java. And uh, his name was King Silewangi. He was the last sort of the King Arthur of them before the coming of Islam. He fought off the the outsiders, the non-Sundanese. And you can sort of like with King Arthur, you can sort of mix and match and figure out which king we're talking about. Prabhu Maharaja Lingwa Buana. I like him because he died in battle in 1371. That's a proper hero. Right. And 1371 is, is relatively recent for a legendary yeah, I mean, hero. It's more recent than King Arthur. Let's put yeah. it that way. And then the various candidate Siliwangis include a, a legendarily long reigning king who's sort of a, a golden age for the Sundans. And he reigned uh, 1371 to 1475, Nick Sala Watsdu Kinsana. And then finally, the last king is a guy named Jayadwata who reigned until 1521. But the stories of Silowangi apparently date from his reign, so I think we can rule him out as being the guy. It'd be like saying Henry Tudor was King Arthur, just because he recognized, hey, a myth about how great the king is. Let's let's spread that one. So, real archaeologists, Robin, and I will begin with them, date it variously. One archaeologist sets it in the 2nd to 5th century A.D., during the kingdom of Tarumangara. Right, which is not tens of thousands of years ago. No. I was playing at home. It is tens of hundreds of years ago, though. Another uh, 6th to 8th century AD, the kingdom of Galu. Both of them are Sunda states, but they're pre the Hindu kingdoms, the, the big ones that Prabhu Maharaja and King Silawangi ruled. There have been found pottery fragments there that have been dated circa 45 BC to 22 AD, so right around that first century, both sides. And in the first century AD, we know from Ptolemy, beloved Greek geographer, that there was an urban civilization, or at least a silver trading port city on the northwest coast of Java right around then. And so no problem at all with that trading post having sent pottery and land to get, you know, delicious wood or whatever, and uh, their uh, pots having, you know, been carried up to the top of this cool hill. So, you know, whatever, it was a cool hill before it got terraced and, and surrounded by cool standing stones. And uh, then the when is the sort of fraught part. As we teased, a team of geologists, none of them archaeologists, excavated the site between 2011 and 2015. Real archaeologists said, you can't excavate a site like that. What the heck? Don't use anything bigger than a hoe. What is wrong with you? And so they used uh, carbon-14 and stratigraphy and their own imaginations, perhaps, to date the site to possibly 23,000 BC, or maybe as we see other people make up even more ridiculous numbers, but the paper says 23,000 BC is when the first rubble-fill pyramid is built as a chambered mound, and how much of the hill is a pyramid, I think, depends on how deep you believe those 
alleged chambers go. And again, no one has opened these chambers. They've just spotted them on tomography and said, that chamber looks like it's full of fluid sand. If it was an actual geology hill, that sand would have petrified and you wouldn't see a chamber. So obviously there must be one. Then they did simple math and got 23,000 BC. Then they dated the brick layer that's sort of at the bottom of the main terrace to 7,900 BC or possibly as late as 6,100 BC, which would still be 3,000 years before the first Egyptian pyramids. And then the final terracing, they admit, might have been as late as 2,000 to 1,100 BC, which is still pretty early for a Indonesian megalith site, but is no longer outside the boundaries of possibility. So you could argue that maybe... The rocks they could see, they dated correctly, and all the other rocks they guessed at. Who can say? Right. And wh- one of the issues is that they're claiming carbon dating, but they haven't carbon dated any organic material. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they just carbon dated the soil. Well, that does not tell you whether this is a pyramid or an extinct volcano, and it certainly doesn't tell you when human habitation affected the site. Yeah. It doesn't even come close to answering that question. And again, this is not a matter of Indonesians being goofus and credulous. This is a matter of Indonesians being an enormous country, having goofus, credulous people among them, because real Indonesian scientists say this is not archaeology, this is pseudo-archaeology, and it's not even good geology, and they've been basically trying to get the geology team led by a guy named Danny Hillman Natawijaja thrown off the mountain because he's a troublemaker. Right. And so this gets into the politics of the organizations that have had uh, control of the site. So this guy, we'll call him Danny Hillman, as he's sometimes called in some papers just for ease of pronunciation. He has been involved with the site for several decades now, and he was able to create an organization that was organized by a presidential advisor called the Ancient Catastrophes Team. And so this is Team Excitable. And so as he began to make claims for the ancient pedigree of the site and the possible occupants of it, without ever quite coming out and saying the word Atlantis, but we'll get to that in a minute, Mm -hmm. he got access to the site through this organization. And then in 2014, as through his efforts, the site became more famous and possibly you know, seemed to the government as a, an important site, then the grown-up archaeologists got involved. And at that time, the ancient catastrophes team was disbanded and replaced by the respectable, scientist-filled national team of research and management of the Gunung Penang site, which is a lot of words for one organization. But Hillman has still had access to the site and is the primary author of this latest paper that has been raising eyebrows. And among the eyebrows being raised are those of volcanologists who look at all the data and go, that's a volcano. (laughs) That's a regular volcano. That's a volcano that's been subject to patterns of erosion and collapse. Uh, Those hidden chambers, it's volcano. (laughs) Sorry, man, it's volcano. Like there was stuff built on the volcano, but the part that you're saying is tens of thousands of years old volcano. Hillman's team also found a coin on the site which it has described as a 52,000-year-old amulet, which is weird because it's a Dutch coin minted between 1914 and 1945. Well, 52,000 years ago, there was a trend for psychically channeled Dutch coins. A lot of people don't know that. I don't think anyone knows that, frankly. Not until now. Yeah, so the, the basic question of what's going on with this cool site is that 
There's a lot of megalithic sites in Java. This is not the only one. There's dozens of sites, even in this area, that include pyramidal platform step pyramids, Punden, Berundak, and most of them are to the extent they can be dated. And keep in mind, most of these datings come from the Dutch, not from the Indonesians. And this is where I think Danny Hillman's side has a tiny sliver of a point, is that the Dutch did not say, oh, look at these monuments created by the people we're colonizing. They said, this must have been built by Babylonians. <laughs> or this must have been built in medieval times. And so they sort of didn't do a lot. And of course, they were doing it before there was a lot of modern archaeological tools and techniques as well. So the sort of, to the extent any of them have dates attached, it is generally 1100 to 1300 AD is the dates that are assigned to them. But those dates, I emphasize, are arbitrary. And all the other Indonesian archaeologists have a legitimate beef that this one site, Gunung Pandang, has taken Half the entire national archaeological budget has been put on this mountain, and all the other work in Indonesia is basically going begging because they're spending all this money on this weird Atlantis mountain, which is right. not weird and not Atlantis, but is a mountain. Right. I guess that brings us to the, the Atlantis laundering part of this. So, <laughs> first of all, let's stress that the real scientists are not fun ruiners. The actual site, as it is believed to be by responsible archaeologists, is plenty interesting. Yeah, and it could plausibly be as old as 2000 BC because there is another megalithic site at Mount Tilu called the Batu Naga site because it has a cool dragon carved on it, and that's been dated to 2000 BC, at least somewhat credibly. And the Sipari megalithic site nearby dated to 1000 BC. So it is possible that there is a megalithic culture that predates the received wisdom of the megalithic culture and because most anthropologists believe that the megaliths were built by sort of Sundanese tribal states in response to these Hindu Buddhist kingdom expansions. So those kingdoms that I mentioned up were expanding and then the locals would get rich out of trade and they'd start developing their own social stratification to compete. And so the way you demonstrate you're a big man is you get everyone together and you make them build a megalith. And that's where those megaliths came from. But that would put it, you know, in the Middle Ages, uh, roughly 600 AD, beginning running to about 1500 AD and the coming of Islam. And that's sort of the consensus anthropological historical view of these megaliths. But 2000 BC is not impossible. It's not crazy talk. Right. Before we move on to the woo, <laughs> it should be said that the journal that this paper appeared in, Archaeological Prospection, does appear to be a legit journal, but it's not one that focuses, it focuses on the techniques of archaeology, not on the historical aspect of it. So their vetting might not have been great, but they're not a, a source of woo. A source of woo, however, familiar to listeners of this podcast is Graham Hancock, who gives it an episode in his recent Netflix series, Ancient Apocalypse. There's a book, however, that sort of started all of this up and got the excitement that got all of the resources diverted to this site. It's a 2005 book by a guy named Arcio DeSantis called Atlantis, the Lost Continent Finally Found. Is that a familiar elliptinist to you, Ken? No, he's new to me. I'm excited. I've read the, the real theory that he is riffing on, which is that Sundaland, the basically the, the high continental shelf attaching the western part of Indonesia to Southeast Asia, used to be during ice ages, when the sea level was lower, it used to be up 
and accessible. And the theory that the Sunderland guy has, which is, I think we're beginning to get outside the realm of plausibility is that that's where, you know, there was a Neolithic civilization again, not outside the realm of entire possibility, but outside the realm of likelihood. And that's where the flood comes from when Sunderland flooded, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You fill it in. We've had that for the black sea. We've had that for Sunderland. We've had it for any number Doggerland. I think someone has theorized lots of these, places that were provably above water during the last ice ages and then got flooded. And wherever there's a flood, there's a Bible guy and an Atlantis guy fighting over it. Right. And so anyway, this is the one that dials up the Atlantists on that theory. Yeah. And among the people who got very excited about this and were the local occultist group Turanga Sita. And they have a whole bunch of interesting beliefs about the past of the Indonesian people. They're classic uh, multi-stream crackpots. They uh, cite geological anomalies, the teak patterns, the shapes of traditional swords. They use all of these in gathering information. They perform ancestral worship at their meetings. So there's a whole bunch of stuff going on there. But they also engage in remote viewing to find the sites where the uh, primordial ancestors lived. Uh, And I'll get to that in a sec. And their accusation is that Hillman and Team Excitable stole their remote viewing and that they poached the sites from them. So there's a a question that I am unwilling to come down on because people are basing all of this on Indonesian that they're using Google Translate to figure out. (laughs) So to what extent is Hillman and did he use remote viewing or not? He definitely has shown up at Atlantis conferences. So there's that. What he doesn't say, and Taranga said it does say, is that the people who built the site were the Nuzwantarans, who are, you know, essentially Atlanteans, but Indonesian, and that they are still among us uh, using their ancient high tech to disguise themselves and to disguise the nature of their archaeological sites. So if there's confusion, Ken, about whether these have uh, chambers or actually volcanoes or how old the ambivits are, that's actually the new Swantarians doing a veil out, I guess. Well, Robin, you'll be glad to know that I have a explanation that will make everyone happy. Nuswantara is a term that was created by the kings of Majapahit to refer to their desire to unify Java and the whole archipelago. So uh, this term comes from medieval times, first appears in like 13... 36. And so what if Nuswantarans used Atlantean knowledge to unify Indonesia in medieval times and did all the stuff, built all these megaliths for their magic Templary purposes, but they did it using remote viewing and channeled future coins and all the other stuff, but they were magic Javanese Templars, not Atlantean types. There. I've solved it, Robin. I've, everyone's happy now. The archaeologists are happy. The woo guys are happy. They built it on a volcano because it was a magic volcano. Now the geologists are happy. How, how great is that? I've, I've brought Indonesia together with my words. There you go. So I think that also explains what the player characters will uh, get up to uh, when they go there, that uh, since the new Swantarans are still hanging around and have their ancient technology, which presumably also includes portals to the past and time travel, yeah. that's your whole adventure right there. Right. And so it's your, it's a way to, uh, I mean, a la Tecumel, drop people in whole hog, because unless you're blessed with players who specialize in Javanese history, this is going to be vastly alien and exciting and 
and, and wonderful. And this investigation of this Indonesian Templar group, and I say Templar just to give it a, a hook for Westerners. They're not Templars. They're different and cooler. They're Hindu uh, super knights. And so the notion will be a, a connective thread if you wanted to do something where you're going through all of this, all these megaliths, all this legendary, all this great stuff. And, you know, maybe you'll even get to, you know, find that King Silawangi is still alive and he's going to come back from his uh, volcano tomb when Indonesia needs him most. And that can be the sort of climax moment. And perhaps his volcano tomb is indeed right here on Gunung Padang. Well, that sounds like a summation if I ever heard one. So let's move on to another segment. The best of Asphageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astvageln on DriveThru. Make sure this podcast keeps on resuming by joining Patreon backers exactly like... Mark Kenny. Steve Sigetti. Tristan Knight. Andy Shockney. And Joe web the chattering of the teletype the braying of the tannoy the sound of a segment being ripped from the headlines welcomes us to today's segment which is about the orca war against spaniards mostly but also anyone who dares to challenge the orca in their kingdom around spain robin so much excitement happens orcas swim up they chew the rudder off a boat. Sometimes it sinks. Sometimes it doesn't. That's the story. Yeah, they, they sunk three, I think, and, and caused another 49 or so boats to, at, at last count. <laughs> this may have changed by the time you hear this, because the orcas are active, man. Yeah. And I was thinking they're in the Mediterranean, but really they're mostly on the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. They're, to the extent anyone can tell, it began in the Strait of Gibraltar area, the Atlantic approaches to the Strait. Well, that's and, a perfect place if you're an orca to pin in a boat. Yeah, absolutely. It's that's narrow. Strategic location. And so the, the orcas began, you know, bumping boats and, 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 uh, biting off rudders. Uh, in June 2020 seems to be the earliest case that we have. The people have started saying, Hey, that orca bit my rudder. Yeah. As opposed to, Everyone well, that a little crazy during lockdown. Mm -hmm. Orcas, no, no less than the rest of us. And indeed it was a thing because people left that area alone. There was many, many fewer boats out. And so the orcas, I think, got thinking that was how it ought to be. And so when the boats come back, the the teen orcas and Ro Robin, they say that it's teenage male orcas. And isn't that really what's at the bottom of so much of this rambunctiousness? <laughs> well, famously, if you're 
if you're an older person or whale and you want yeah. someone to do your dirty work for you, you send the the young men out. That's right. That's how so you're saying that works. the teen orcas are just a, a glove on the flipper of big orca. Exactly. Yes. Right. So anyway, uh, they attacked 52 different boats between June 2020 and March 2021, including a yacht in the Strait of Gibraltar. And so this is like a 50-footer. This is not a tiny boat anymore. They attacked at least 27 in the Strait of Gibraltar alone, and that was just in July of 2021. They hit off Galicia, Cape Obregal, in June of 2022, two sailboats off Portugal uh, last July, and then a new exciting orca development. They attacked a sailboat off Brittany, in France, way north of this area in 2022 in August. And people thought, oh, the orcas are telling other orcas bite rudders now. And that's where we left it. And they literally are <laughs> that, that orcas learn from each other, particularly the young ones imitate the behavior of each other and the older ones. And that is exactly what is happening is that an anti-boat culture is, is spreading among orcas. And so who knows how far it could go or how long it can continue to spread. Yeah, orcas do this. Fad behavior is not new amongst orcas. There's another group of orcas in the Pacific. And in all the articles I read that they say they mysteriously attack crab pots. It's like, that's not a mystery. If, <laughs> yeah. if I was an orca, I would be attacking a crab pot. I it has a delicious you. crab inside. There's a crab. Yeah. More excitingly, in the Puget Sound in the 80s. So this is, you know, no doubt, you know, pre-grunge or proto-grunge. Orcas would swim around in Puget Sound wearing salmon like a hat. Yeah. They would kill a salmon, put it on their head, swim around, looking yeah. cool. They'll develop culture to do just a fad. Just and, and the best thing is they, that lasted like most of the summer. And then the next summer, a couple of orcas tried to make it happen again. And the other orcas mocked them. Yeah. They were the uncool orcas trying to revive the thing. Right. So, indeed, their attacks are on rudders. And this suggests, of course, that the orcas who are... You know, whales are very smart, have figured out the physics of boats and yeah. know what to break in order to force that boat to uh, limp away. Echolocation is an ideal thing to have if you're trying to find the rudder on a boat. So they're very equipped to do this. And like all goal-oriented individuals who want to do a good job and get things done, they check their work. Uh, there's an instance in the July 25th attack where the orca, after they bashed the rudder, it made one last pass to check and make sure it was broken before they all went away. So they know exactly what they're doing. They know the effect. They know why that renders the boat inoperative. And uh, they've uh, they figured it out. And I'd like to say that the Spanish government is not letting this. They're not taking this lying down. The culture of the Armada, the culture of Columbus, the, the culture of losing to America rapidly in Manila Bay. What they did is they said, Oh, if you've got a boat that's 15 meters or under, stay out of the orca's way. Yeah. We're excluding you from the, the wide ocean. You have to sail such and such distance from the shore, and then you won't be attacked by orcas. So they've surrendered. They've given up the Straits of Gibraltar to the orcas. And uh, right now, uh, you know, I'm sure that uh, both the hated British and Hitler are going, it was that easy? But there we are. The boaters themselves are not taking this lying down. There's a recent attempt to discourage them by playing heavy metal music underwater, mm. which horrified experts on uh, marine mammals, but I think that would just get them head up H had no apparent effect on the, it didn't discourage the orc. I think if you've got problem teens playing them, heavy metal is not the solution. Exactly. Just encourage them. As I noted earlier on social media, it will stop sharks because they stop to argue about the different subgenres of metal and which mm -hmm. falls into yep. which definition, but orcas, they don't care. No. And the thing is we, 
actually, apparently, have identified the particular orca who started this. Her name is a White Gladys. Mm. Uh, and according to the marine biologist Monica Gonzalez of a marine mammal study group called SEMA, C-E-M-M-A, which stands for We Study Whales in Spanish. Yep. And apparently, White Gladys was pregnant during the first whale attack. They have a very long gestation period. And the theory is that she became enraged, possibly while she was interacting with a sailboat, was towing a fishing line behind it. And so whether she was entangled or the boat collided with her, but she supposedly was traumatized by this event and started attacking boats and has been training other whales, including the, the this group of teenage male whales, to go around doing this. Now, the trauma theory, and we know that it is 2023, so trauma mm -hmm. is part of every hero's origin story. She must have been traumatized because she became so determined to sink boats that after her calf was born, she would take her calf with her on raids attacking the boat, which apparently suggested to the experts that, well, clearly this is neglectful behavior, which an orca would never do. Therefore, she must have been heavily traumatized by this event. <laughs> On the other hand, the calf, Gladys Falabres, is part of the gang that is attacking <laughs> yeah. shipping now. And so maybe it's just the family business and these orcas are badasses. I believe orcas are badasses as well established. Just making mom proud. Yeah. And so, I mean, I say nothing against Monica Gonzalez or the good people at SEMA, but my just so story alarm went off when I read that, oh, we angered White Gladys with a rope. It's like, all right, maybe we did. I'm not saying that being, you know, hit by a rope is fun, but also I think we may have found a story we wanted to tell and found it somewhere in the wide ocean in this vast quantity of boat attacks and decided that that's the one we wanted everyone to hear about and, and have a little chin scratch and write a thoughtful piece in The Guardian about. I think actually orcas are just fun-loving hellions and biting a rudder turns out to be super fun because rudders make the water sort of go swooshy-swoosh. And if you're an orca, that's pretty cool. You, you enjoy the swooshy-swoosh. And so you get right up close to it. And then once you're right up close to it, what's more fun than biting the rudder? I ask you nothing. Right. But this question is still posed. Why all of a sudden? And right. why so why systematically? And why I think, today? I think for that, I'm giving props to White Gladys. Right. But... This is the part where we figure out what's really going on. And so, as we know, badass sea creatures can league with others. If we're going to think of a extremely powerful marine entity that hates boats, too, of course, Cthulhu. Yeah, pops to mind. He has a grudge against boats. And so, he possibly uh, could have whispered in White Gladys's ear. But that doesn't seem his style, really. I think orcas are, are too groovy and cool for him. It also seems a little low low rent for him. Well, you know, he's sending out emanations all the time. He's making right, yeah. symbolist poets write things. Right, Might yeah. as well have whales attack things. But still, I think, really, this has to be a more classic god. Uh, dare I say, literally the classic god. This has to be Poseidon, right? Right, yeah. Or the possibility is could be Dionysus getting up to stuff. Because Dionysus, remember, famously turned pirates into porpoises. Porpoises are like cousins to orcas. So maybe there was a different batch of pirates out in the North Atlantic, as opposed to the Mediterranean, and Dionysus turned them into orcas and said, now no one's allowed to attack any boats. 
for, oh, let's see, what's a big round number? 3,500 years or whatever. And they were saying, oh, man, you never let us have any fun. But the, you know, the, the curse has expired and now they're welcome to do it. I don't even think that it's Dionysus being a jerk, although there's sort of a Tim Powers notion that someone has been tainting the wine maybe in, in Portugal or wherever, and that's got all the orcas stirred up because of the old pact. But I think it, it could be just as simple as curses expired. Let's go. Yeah, I think Dionysus is the guy to look at, maybe even over Poseidon or Neptune. Well, as we know, many gods have been accredited with the anger of the sea. And I think this is still a instance of sea anger that a lot of people get behind and uh, have little sympathy for owners of, of boats and their rudders. Well, everyone loves orcas. Very few people own sailboats. Exactly, so I think yeah. that's how the math is going to play out. And on that note, Ken, I think it's time to uh, take a little break and then have our final segment of the show. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X. In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a foreword by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the nirvana of Nyarlatha tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which of course is the conveyance that his superiors at Time Incorporated used to send our hero back into time to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes even mutilate it. But this time around, we're not talking about mutilation, but rather uh, constant repair work and vigilance, because there are some interferences with the time stream that are not due to you, Ken, or to Time Incorporated, but to your various chrono enemies. Exactly. And I'm sure, in fact, know for a fact, that chrono enemies frequently try to rewrite history so that the hated British win the American Revolutionary War. And so there are presumably points in time that uh, you have to uh, vigilantly protect. And uh, if they manage to change them, you have to reverse them. And so I thought without giving too much away to time enemies who are known not really to listen to podcasts, I thought we would uh, look at the flashpoints in history that have to be protected in order to ensure that uh, the Americans win the American Revolutionary War and therefore call it that. Right. As opposed to the American Rebellion or whatever. Yes. The Tea Rebellion, they would have called it. The, the sort of the big answer that a lot of people give is the Battle of Saratoga. 
And the Battle of Saratoga is General Burgoyne is marching south from Canada. General Clinton is eventually sailing north from New York. They're going to meet around Albany, snip the colonies in twain, isolate rebellious Massachusetts, and complete the conquest of the mid-Atlantic states that they basically began by taking New York the year previously. So this is 1777, British logistics and gentleman Johnny Burgoyne being who they are. They don't really get started on that march until almost the end of summer. So they're in Saratoga in October, which is not when you want to be trying to move cross country in upstate New York, especially not in the cold snap that was the American Revolution. So Burgoyne's column is already pretty played out by the time they run into the Continental Army. And so everyone thinks, well, we'll just have that battle go the other way. That'll solve it. Well, the battle itself is pretty overdetermined because the militia in New Hampshire have swarmed up and cut off the, the hated British's even more hated Hessian flanks. Their reinforcement under Salinger has fallen in further uh, upstate New York at Oriskany. So Burgoyne is really sort of on his own facing not only an enraged American militia, but also the Continental Army. And it's it's a slog. So unless you're bringing a, a helicopter gunship to the battle, it's going to be hard to change Saratoga on the ground. If you want to change Saratoga, Robin, what you do is you make sure that Benedict Arnold dies of his wounds or of a different, better wound in his attack on Quebec on December 31st, 1776. He charges across the ice, trying desperately to seize the Citadel of Quebec before the British reinforcements can get there. Heroic General Montgomery is is gunned down. You can see the plaque on the wall in Quebec when they say, got you, and then uh, he's shot in the leg very near there and nearly dies. He's, he's dragged off the field by his men and uh, has to stay in bed, and that's why Quebec doesn't fall to the Americans. But if Benedict Arnold dies at Quebec, he is not at Saratoga, and his job at Saratoga was to yell at General Gates over and over and over. And General Gates said, I've built a cool fort. I will sit here. And Benedict Arnold says, I don't know if you've ever met the British, but that's not how to win. And so he's the guy that basically shames General Gates. He says, well, if you don't want to send any guys, I'll just go out myself. And he's like, all right, I'll send some guys. So they send frontiersman Daniel Morgan and the Virginia Rifles out with Benedict Arnold. And that starts the first battle of Saratoga at Freeman's Farm. That's what gives Gentleman Johnny the bloody nose. And then Gentleman Johnny forts up. And Gates has said, well, we're both in forts. I think I win. And Arnold is saying, again, Clinton is coming up the river the other direction. Don't you read the memo? And basically disobeys order. He's confined to his tent by General Gates, disobeys orders, charges out of his tent, again, possibly alone, recruits a bunch of guys with sheer Benedict Arnold charisma, and charges the British fort, which was not particularly finished because the British think who's going to attack a fort. Well, it turns out Benedict Arnold is going to attack their fort leads his men in a gallant charge is again, wounded in the leg is dragged off the field. Once more screaming imprecations and by his action and 
almost his action alone, the British are stopped at Saratoga. And, and if you want to do time interference, this is what you're looking for, is moments in time where right. one person did things, not where a broad historical force did things, but one person, because then that's a recipe for messing with things. And also, it's ideal if you have lots of portraits of that one person, so you can pick them out of a crowd of guys in the same uniform, none of whom have taken a bath yes. this when month. History's changed by an anonymous person, and there's no records of that. That is harder. That is harder to do. Although I have one of those two. Um, so, if you... Take Benedict Arnold out of the equation. Gates' second in command is a guy named Benjamin Lincoln, who is a perfectly adequate commander, but he's again of the let's sit in the fort and see what happens school of fighting and is not if going to. If I had a choice between sitting in a fort and getting shot at, I would select the fort. That's why no one has made me a revolutionary war general. No, yeah. I mean, at almost no time do my life choices and those of Benedict Arnold line up. I, I want to clarify that. And that includes the heroic charging and the horrific treason part. But generally, sitting in the fort is its more comfortable, certainly. And, and am I remembering correctly that the lack of respect for his daring do is what sort of turned him to, uh, to turn his coat? That was a big part of it. Because Gates was super popular in Congress by the We Hate George Washington faction. And so, whenever Bennett Arnold did something amazing, Congress would ignore it. Because they would say, well, you were just... I'm sure Horatio Gates told you to do that cool thing. And he says, literally the opposite if you can believe it. And George Washington was always super nice to him and recognized his great talent, but he also recognized that he's the kind of guy who yells at a commanding officer and maybe doesn't play well with others. And so that caused a lot of problems for Benedict Arnold. So if you're asking, Benedict Arnold's psychic happiness would have been completed if he'd just been heroically killed at Saratoga, but in fact, he survives and goes on to be a horrible traitor. But at that point, he saves America by defeating the British nigh single-handedly and bringing the French in and forcing General Johnny to surrender his army, which is something that the British had never done to Americans ever, ever, ever. And that, that act of surrender is really the big changing point. But when you talk about anonymous guys, we don't know who they are. George Washington, at the Battle of Brandywine, George Washington liked to ride out in front of his troops to lead them because otherwise they were taking votes and saying, we got a majority for staying in the fort, sir. So General Washington would ride out and shame them into coming after him. And at one point, a British sniper had him in his sights, uh, September 11th, 1777, Battle of Brandywine, and said, it's not sporting to shoot General Washington with my cool sniper rifle. I'll just shoot someone else. And that was just a decision. Sort of urban legend says that guy was Patrick Ferguson, the inventor of the breech-loading Ferguson rifle. Probably it was not Patrick Ferguson, but it's a cooler story that way. He did not want to bring disrepute onto rifles by shooting right. Washington. By shooting George Washington and making it, you know, the, the weapon of a of a low cur. So, yeah, that's another window where another guy with a sniper rifle could shoot George Washington and blame Patrick Ferguson. And history has changed with very little murmur. Uh, George Washington also did his famous ride out in front of the troops to shame them at the Battle of Kipps Bay. This is on Manhattan Island where the hated British are getting ready to land on the undefended shores of Manhattan Island. Washington is basically saying, we have to put militia everywhere. When the British land, they'll yell, and we'll bring the Continental Army to reinforce. And the militia took one look at the oncoming British and not just yelled, but run off. And Washington is basically left standing alone on the shore of Kipps Bay as 80 redcoats are charging up the beach at him. And had his staff not gotten to him and grabbed him 
he said, why, why am I fighting for these guys? Why, why not just kill me? Kill me now. Why not? And so they, they grab him and drag him physically off the battlefield. That's September 15th, my birthday, 1776. Again, an opportunity to take out Washington. I don't believe that I need to emphasize that losing George Washington loses us the war, or it certainly loses America as it becomes, because he is the indispensable man at keeping the army in the field. He's the indispensable man at devising the Fabian strategy that wears the hated British down. He's the indispensable man at having enough votes in Congress to prevent a chucklehead like Horatio Gates from getting voted as uh, commander in chief. And of course, he's the indispensable man who says, rather than I'm the guy with the only army on the continent, I'll make myself dictator as virtually every other revolution ends. He said, I'm going to resign and go hang out in my cool house. And if you yell at me, I'll come be your president, but I'm only doing it for two terms until you get the hang of it. And then I'm going back to my cool house. So without Washington, the whole situation falls apart. There is another way to mess with George Washington without messing with George Washington, very dangerous, as we know. And that is the Battle of the Chesapeake on September 5th, 1781. Washington is at Yorktown besieging General Cornwallis, but he's doing so without any heavy artillery and without naval support. And the French Navy sails heroically to his defense. They're escorting the ships, carrying all of his heavy guns. And Admiral Graves, possibly the worst admiral within 200 years, and what luck he was our admiral at our time, sails out from New York to stop de Grasse, the French admiral. And he gets so flummoxed by the fact that there is a French fleet roughly the size of his. It's actually smaller. He doesn't know that. He sends two signals simultaneously, one that says, he thinks to the front of his line, engage the French. And to the back of his line, he says, hold back. But the trouble is you send two signals, the whole fleet can see it, and they all get confusilated, and they bunch up, and so the French, numerically inferior, are able to come up and bang the heck out of them. And if Graves doesn't mess up that signaling, the British naval tradition of beating the French probably kicks in. And at the very least, Washington doesn't get his heavy siege guns, and at the worst, de Grasse, you know, heads back to, you know, the Caribbean and says, well, I gave it a good run. And Washington is, instead of uh, surrounding, he is the surrounded, and he loses Yorktown, and he loses there, and that would be the last sort of great chance to end the revolution in favor of the hated British. But the best possible time to take out not just George Washington, but the entire Continental Army is during their evacuation from Long Island on August 29th, 1776. George Washington is defending New York. So his men are in position in Long Island, the British land on Long Island, and they beat him. And he pulls back and he has another fight and they beat him again. And he pulls back and he has another fight and they beat him again. And at some point he's running out of Long Island. He's in like the Bronx and he says, (laughs) well, this isn't good. And he basically penned up against the Hudson River. The British are coming. And uh, General Howe famously dawdles with a local lady is the story that uh, we like to put out, as opposed to General Howe is one of those sit-in-the-fort type generals, which is actually pretty much true. But George Washington is like, well, we're doomed, back to the sea, nothing can help us. And then a fog blows up out of nowhere, and his men are basically shuttled back and forth across the Hudson to Manhattan from Long Island during this miracle fog on the night of August 29th. And so August 30th dawns, Howe, you know, gets out of bed, no doubt says polite things to the local lady, eats his breakfast, you know, has some tea, has some scones, goes out and says, so what happened? 
did I miss anything? And everyone says, ha, ha, no, surely not. We'll get him at Kips Bay. And that was the moment where if the fog hadn't happened, if General Howe had not been of a, a more languorous constitution, then the British would have caught the Continentals and that would have been it. The whole Continental Army would be gone. George Washington would be gone. And the rebellion would have ended in August of 1776 at a point before there was so much blood and treasure poured into it by the Americans that we would have said, all right, best two out of three. We might actually have given in because Howe was also empowered by the parliament to negotiate peace terms. He could have just negotiated a treaty. And again, it would not have been impossible for Congress to have said, well, we had a good run and signed everything over, and that would have been the end of it, or at least the end of it for them. So what do time enemies do to uh, to change that one? Do they impersonate the uh, lady and have her uh, send uh, the officer on his way? I think that there's all manner of things you can do. You could impersonate Mrs. Murray. You could have her just not be at home. You could have a courier that bangs on the door and says, no, seriously, this is an important message. Lots of way to get how off the dime, if that's the problem. Or you go to one of Howe's ambitious junior officers, like, I don't know, Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne, and you say, here's a possibility for you to win the whole Revolutionary War, which won't even be called that. It's such a good possibility. And while Howe is, you know, hanging out, an independently minded officer with eyes full of glory shows up. And it would not have taken a lot of British to interfere with that evacuation because a crosswater evacuation in small boats. I mean, we all saw Dunkirk. It's that with the hated British and no panzers. Right. And I'm sure somebody sends orcas. Yeah. I mean, orcas could have been uh, present at any time. Who can say? And once again, uh, I'm not concerned that time enemies will listen to this podcast because there isn't a single one of them supporting us on, on Patreon. Right. They, they would have to say there's a, there's a box. Right. And of course, it's not like you are sitting in your fortress time-wise that you and your uh, fellow time travelers are actively preventing them from doing this whenever they try it, right? No, I am uh, I am there. I am in New York City in 1776, drinking in local taverns, Culper ringing it up, making sure that uh, area widows know not to dally with General Howe, or better yet, to dally completely with General Howe if, if they're so inclined. Well, now that we've uh, laid out all of those uh, time points and everybody knows that they're safe because they're protected, I think that we can uh, close up the podcast for this week but we'll be back next week with more of the similar stuff. Having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas games, Pelgrane press, Astvagelm, arc dream, dork tower, and pro fantasy software. Music as always is by James simple audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreoncom backslash Canon Robin. Stop the orcas of underfunding from tearing off this podcast rudders by joining such beloved backers as Brian Malcolm, Phil Groff, Liz and Siski, Terry Robinson, and Thomas Edward. Wear this show a drinking from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Celebrate densely packed biomes with our latest design you are a special island. On X, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Mastodon, he's Robin D. Laws at Dice.camp. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff. <laughs>